thank you everyone for coming along. This is a much more intimate uh, sized crowd than Jody's book launch in uh, in Warrnambool. Uh, for those of you who didn't get along to that one, I'm, I'm told there was 550 people at the book launch and it just kept, kept, kept having to up the venue for it until it was in the Lighthouse Theatre. So where they have all the big productions, this was a big production on that stage basically. And I've never heard of a book launch like that, so that's amazing. But it probably goes some way towards uh, demonstrating uh, the, the number of people who, who know and love Jodie, for one, but also the, the subject she's writing about is something that just seems to touch everyone's lives in some way at some point. If not you personally, then someone you know. Um, the book, of course, is A Hole in My Jeans and it's Jodie's journey, journey is such, is such a cliche term, but it's her journey through breast cancer. Uh, spoiler alert, she survives. Uh, everyone, Dr. Jody Fleming. It's like the Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the, the first thing that struck me about reading this was I just wondered where was the point where you went, this horrible traumatic thing I went through, I should write a book about this. <laughs> um, I, I don't know that I ever really consciously set out to write a book about that. Um, I well, throughout the the treatment phase, was journaling a lot, writing letters to my nan um, who had died four years earlier. Um, someone I was super super close to. Um, I have her her signature tattooed on my wrist, um, and I at that point really felt like she was the person I would have leaned on if I if she was around um, and so writing to her was uh, a way of feeling connected but I also was able to sort of tap into you know what she would have said and how she would have comforted me and um, so so there was this book of letters to her um, that I ended up with which at the end of the day when active treatment ended I found I really actually quite missed the writing process um, and so I randomly stumbled across a, an online writing school um, which I joined for about three years and we had weekly assignments we had to hand in these essays of two and a half thousand words um, in length every week and we had the choice of either following the prompt that the writing teacher gave us or we um, sorry. <laughs> Hi. Um, or we, um, or we could choose our own topic, and and I still had a lot of processing to do um, to to understand what the hell had just happened to my life, um, and so I chose each week to sort of take an aspect of my story and and workshop it. And after a little while, um, I started getting this really beautiful feedback because each week um, three other of the writing students would critique your work, as would the writing teacher. And um, they were people from all sorts of walks of life, uh, lawyers and doctors and um, house husbands and, you know, you name it, they were in there. And, um, and I started getting this feedback like, oh, wow, you – if you hadn't have written that topic last week, I wouldn't have been able to help my client who is now, you know, suing her surgeon for negligent, you know, work on, you know, she'd had breast cancer and had obviously reconstructive work and things. And um, I just kept, kept getting feedback like that. And I was like, 
Wow, okay, so there might be something useful in this. And I'm a little bit hardwired as a psychologist to want to help people. Um, and I think also when you have a very massive um, event happen in your life, um, particularly a traumatic event, you seek meaning um, in that event. And so it seemed to me oh, well, if I could help just one other person through sharing um, this story, then maybe that's what I should do. So, um, it, yeah, it sort of became a book or at least half a book at that stage. So, <laughs> yeah. And through that writing course, I mean, what did you uh, – I mean, you obviously had enjoyed writing beforehand if you're writing a journal the whole time. And I think you mentioned in there at one point you had a blog as well that was yeah. just as part of your as, – as a psychologist, is that right? Uh, the first blog I had was around processing um, th the issue of childlessness um, and I have always loved to write. I loved writing all through school. I remember in grade two um, my book about the little green and black monster. Um, <laughs> like I just always loved to write and then in secondary school more so and, and – um, and in psychology training, you write a lot, um, a little bit more scientific, obviously. Uh, so I guess it was always in me to write. But there's something um, very, very therapeutic about the writing process. Uh, so, you know, when we're... Okay, so the back, in the centre of our brain, we have our limbic system, which is our emotion centre in our brain. And when we're running on emotion, um, our, our thinking part of our brain, our problem-solving you know, um, executive functioning part of our brain actually shuts down. Those two things can't work equally at the same time. So when we have a lot of our thinking that happens in our subconscious, we can actively bring it into our consciousness um, by writing. Uh, and so I knew that. And um, when I was searching my toolkit for how I was going to get through um, that horrendous period of my life, um, I knew that writing would be helpful in some way, shape or form. So it was easy to tap into that. And are you, because you've always liked writing, were you someone who thought, I'm going to write a book one day, but you probably didn't think it was going to be this book? <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. For sure. It was always on the bucket list. Um, mm. It was always one of my uh, life's big goals. I probably never assumed it would be a memoir. Um <laughs> <laughs> um, and certainly wouldn't be talking so personally about a lot of um, bodily functions. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, no, but I always thought I would. I had a book in me. I think we all have books in us. Um, and so I'm sort of really stoked, actually, it's come out now at 46. I sort of feel like I can just take a, a breather now. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not working on another book at the moment? <laughs> I'd love to be. Um, I struggle. People ask that all the time. Oh, what's your next book? Um, and, you know, I, I'd be lying if I didn't admit that, you know, I, I, this book is selling much better than I thought it would and this whole thing is happening so much uh, bigger than I thought it would that it allows me to dream a little bit that I might sell a magical number of this book. Um, which may lead down the track to um, a book deal. Um, yeah, so I, I, I daydream, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Um, you mentioned before that it, it was kind of therapeutic or uh, to, to be writing during the, the process of what was all happening. When it came time to sort of put it together as a book, how much of that was 
cathartic and how much of it just dragged you back into a dark place? Like, was it a good process or a bad process to go back through a lot of those things? Mm, such a good question. Um, good and bad. It took three years to compile the book, I think largely because there were huge chunks of it where I had to just I, – I didn't want to go into it so I avoided it for months at a time. Um, it certainly was re-traumatising in places – um, if any of you have read it so far, um, I, I talk about my marriage to my ex-husband, Dave, and, and Dave, because Dave is such a big part of the start of the story, um, I really needed um, his permission, obviously, to be able to tell um, those stories. And, and, and actually, when you're writing about people who are real and alive, I had to ask an awful lot of people for permission. <laughs> um, but there was one Melbourne trip... Uh, he and I were going to see Fallout Boy, I think, together. He'd come home and we were driving to Melbourne together and I read the first f uh, 100 pages to him word for word um, on that journey and, oh, my God, that was excruciating um, but also wonderful and cathartic and, uh, mm, yeah, interesting. And even now, like, I had never read it cover to cover um, until the week before the launch and even then there were parts where I just went mm, like, oh, just, yeah, I remember. It's like sometimes those feelings are right under the surface. And um, and even today Dorothy, my neighbour, came in to come over here tonight and um, I was a little bit flat and she was like, oh, so how are you going with this? Because this, this is my third sort of talk so far. I've got another one tomorrow morning. And I had, uh, I had a survivorship um, presentation yesterday that I did at the hospital and I just said, I just am not liking this sitting in the cancer space again because it's been nine years and it's, um, yeah, I, I'm ready for a bit of a break from it again. Yeah. I was going to say, I'll try not to ask too many questions about it, but it's <laughs> kind of difficult. Um, who's, who's read the books already? There's a few people here. I don't want to spoil too much about it because what it, it's, it's more than just the fact that she survives, but it, and it mentions this at, at the, on the blurb on the back too that, um, the di diagnosis comes exactly one month after the end of her marriage. So that's kind of the compounding factor there. But um, get, if, if Dave hadn't give you hadn't give you new permission, would that have just scuttled the whole thing? Like, do you feel like you could have written the book without that stuff in there? Um, I suppose so. I, I'm, there's so many... Um, uh, so I have a friend... <laughs> as we all do, who's a, um, a film editor and he read it and he was like, oh, I really want to write the screenplay. There are like five or six really strong endings here and I can see this and I can see that. But I think the Dave component, because Dave also had, well, he didn't have breast cancer, he had des testicular cancer when I met him. So, I mean, what are the odds, right? Diagnosed by the same doctor as I was, um... And, uh, and, and eight years earlier than me, so we weren't a really, you know, it wasn't tr totally tragic all at once. Um, and I think that plus the fertility stuff that comes up, like I think they're really key to the mm. story. I think I just would have changed his name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, based, based on a true story. Damien. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Davian. Um, was there anyone who said, don't put me in your book? 
when you you had to go around to an extra like there's a like a dramatist person at the start basically where you list everyone all your friends and explain them all i think you call them all gorgeous yeah, i think I do. um but was there anyone who said no nah, leave me out you don't no. have to name them if there was yeah there was this re- no 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 one so what either happened was they i said okay here's the book please all read it let me know if you need any changes if you don't want to be in it whatever um so people either said nope i trust you with my life good luck to them (laughs) um obviously i changed the names of i gave nicknames to the people that probably weren't shown so favorably and um there were there was one person a really key person and actually i was quite upset with myself that i hadn't uh realized i'd actually shared some very personal information of hers um that wasn't widely known so that got changed um and just one other random one like (laughs) so I had these two friends who were psychologists in Newcastle with me one I met as a lecturer but we became colleagues and um she wanted it to be known that she was my lecturer not just a colleague (laughs) so (laughs) whatever that's okay (laughs) okay. I don't know all right okay um because, I mean, aside from all of the things that you're going through in, in the story too, there's other people who are going through traumatic things as well, isn't there? So that was – that must have been kind of in your mind a lot too. Uh, well, you talk oh. about other people who've, who have been through cancer or who oh, yes. are going through cancer. Yes. And, yeah. So obviously I changed the names and the sort of identifying information of those clients. But those clients of mine – because I worked as a psycho-oncologist before getting cancer myself. Um, So I worked with a lot of young women with breast cancer, um, children. I worked in a kids' cancer hospital um, and they taught me so much. They were so vital to the story, I felt. Um, But obviously, so the three that I particularly speak of died. Um, I I didn't ask their families for permission because I don't know how to find them and I've changed all that information, so... Because um, th- that's the other big hook of this is that as a psycho-oncologist and someone who helps people deal with cancer and then you get it, I mean, uh, h- how much of this book do you, did you intend to be much like your job to help people through this? And, and how much of it was just because you needed to get it out? Well, it started as a need to get it out. And then when I decided, oh, this could help people, um, I decided to add a little bit more... Um, sort of information about how they might take on the strategies that I had used and be able to implement them from reading that book. Um, yeah, so it's it's a hybrid book really and I think if ever my first idea and I guess just because it's the easiest one uh, would be to take those strategies and make it a bit more of a technical read. Not a technical one but a, more of a self-help read um, to make it more implicit, explicit, explicit. Mm. Well, I mean, that's what I quite liked about the book is that it didn't feel like a technical read. Like, it, there's a there's a there's a narrative through it. There's a story, and you know, I mean, you you feel like a, you seem like a character <laughs> in the book, and it feels like a character's journey. So, I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that you did change things a bit anyway to try and make that a bit more explicit. Um, were you uh, were, were you worried about? certain things that you're putting in from from yourself in there like i mean you because it's very it's very open and it seems very honest so uh, did you 
tell me about the, the process of, of going through that, of being so open and honest. Um, I, yes. <laughs> I, <laughs> um, I think, well, when I initially wrote it all, it was for my own catharsis. So um, nothing was left out. Um, and then, uh, I, like I said, I hadn't read the whole thing. And when the proof came in the mail... I went, oh, wow, and I flicked it open to a page and I read this sentence that said, but my vagina had other ideas and I went, oh, my God, (laughs) it's too late now, what have I done? Um, But but, but, so um, there, there were so many things that my medical professionals didn't tell me um, and as a young woman going through breast cancer and then early menopause and being single, um, they don't tell you the stuff you need to know. Like, so, and then they give you sort of misinformation even because I think they're a bit scared to broach the topic. And so I found stuff out the hard way and along the way and incidentally and thanks to Kathy Bates. <laughs> um, and... And I just went, I can't leave that stuff out because if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it properly. And I'm I'm such a big believer in human-to-human connections and honesty and I feel at the bottom of my soul that if we were all more honest with our own experiences, none of us would feel alone with what are really normal human um, experiences to have. So I wasn't going to... Do you know? Skip out and take the easy road, and everyone that I know that buys the book and goes, oh, I say to them, "Oh my God, you're about to learn far too much about <laughs> me." <laughs> yeah. uh, did you? This feels like a leading question, but but there must have been stuff where you went, "No, that's just too much. I can't put that in." Did you draw a line anywhere, or just went, "No, it's all." Got to go in. Yeah, no, I did. I did. Um, the you don't, so you don't have to say what the things you left out are because we're yeah, not going to okay, make you do that. <laughs> <laughs> I did and and more around, well, so the first relationship afterward, that, that initial right uh, looks a little bit different to how it ended up in the book but also my f- feelings about my surgeon. Um, so, because <laughs> he was like Dr. Death. Every time I left him, I felt like I was about to die. He was just... he. W- but now I'm his colleague and I know him an awful lot better and we have socialised in the same social circles and I understand that he is just a very, very, very thorough practitioner and I didn't ever want to hurt his feelings with him knowing that my dear in the headlights, Jody, did not see him the same way as today Jody does. So I did soften his chapter as well. <laughs> um, the you, you mentioned before the letters to your nan, and that's a really it's a really interesting thing throughout the book. Where you keeps you like like you said, like she would have been your confidant or the person you could rely on. Um, did you always know that was going to be? A, a part of it being a book like I mean I imagine someone could have easily said just take those bits out but you, did you feel like that had to be in there uh, I didn't always know they were going in um, I, I don't even remember how that mm. sort of started I think it must have been in one of the writing classes um, where I mentioned Nan and I think Nan got 
a bit of a, a, a good rap in the writing classes and and it made sense to me then that she would be a running theme. Um, and it, they and they are word for word real quotes out of the journal mm-hmm. and I just felt like they were a nice way of tying in, um, I don't know, the, the present to the past to the whatever was happening in the story. So I, saw, I love that she's in there. Yep. Yeah. Um, and, f- and about that writing course, I mean, what did you learn through that? I mean, through the process of this, what did you learn about being a writer? Oh, my God. <laughs> I still don't know that I'm a writer. <laughs> I learnt so much. I, every time I see the word was now, I just cringe. So we were never allowed to really use the verb to be or was. <laughs> we had to come up with some other way. We never used um, uh, adverbs. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to show it, don't tell it. <laughs> I think all the cliche things. Yeah. 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 Um, but I, I learnt to find my voice as well and I learnt to figure out who I was writing for um, and that if I was writing for myself, that was how I could find my most authentic voice. Otherwise, I remember um, early on, so I think my first couple of classes, everyone was really overly polite. And they're all American and I was the Australian and they kept trying to correct my spelling. And um, <laughs> and and everyone was giving me really good feedback. And then a couple of classes in this really brash American lady um, came in and she wrote to me and she goes, do you sit with a high-buttoned white shirt and pearls and a cardigan and do you speak very properly? And I was like, nah. (laughs) She goes, well, you're bloody right like you do, so you better start being a bit more authentic. And then that's when I was like, oh, wow, okay. And I started rehearsing how to do that. And, um, And one of, you know, I love... People read the book, people who know me, and they say, oh, I can just hear you saying that. Um, so I, I feel like I sort of nailed that a little bit. But that took three years of writing and rewriting and reworking and um, loads of feedback and, yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's great, a great piece of advice. Did um, uh, um, did you feel like... Uh, that process at any point we thought I'd, maybe I don't want to go through with this? Like with, like you said before, you took you back to some dark places. Was, it, was there a point where you went, maybe I don't want to keep going and writing this book over those three years? Uh, I don't – I can't remember there being. Um, so when – and you would know this very well. When you uh, want to publish a book, you, you don't – just write a whole book and then hope someone buys it off you. Um, I wrote the first half and I uh, looked for an agent, um, which I found very, very quickly. And she was a very big fan and she helped shape the last half of the book. And um, she started shopping that around to the major players Um, And it was getting really positive feedback but nobody was in a position to pick it up and it was coming out at the same time as Love Your Sister um, was and they, you know, we don't want too many breast cancer memoirs kind of thing. And so then her next, you know, port of call was to go to the smaller boutique publishing houses and at the same time her, um, oh, she just had this horrific tragedy in her family and she couldn't work um, 
she couldn't work with me anymore. She couldn't, um, I think, probably work at all <laughs> for a little while. And, and also sort of said to me at that point, you won't get another um, agent now because there won't be anything in it for them um, because we've run out of options with the big um, publishing houses. So then it was up to me. So I did a bit of pitching myself um, but with no luck and, and then it got too hard. So I went, okay, well, it wasn't meant to be. And um, so I left it sitting for about three years just doing nothing it just was untouched. You didn't try and push it or anything, and you just thought it wasn't going to get published at that point. Yeah. So what changed? What what happened? <laughs> um, so then I went. I I I probably burnt out a bit at at work, um, and I went on a retreat. This was last year, and I had the space to have a, a little bit of, of a think about how my life was going and how I saw it going from that point forward. And I knew that um, a lot had to change. I couldn't just sit face to face with clients six hours a day and um, and still have a life because I was getting home from work and not wanting to talk to another human and turning down invitations from my friends and and not wanting to date and not you know just was becoming quite just solitary at my little house. Um, so I went on this retreat and um, I at the same time bought this book called The Desire Map, which is probably cliche thing but um, I worked through it and it, it asks you to think about how you want to feel in your life and I came up with my four core desired feelings which were that I wanted to feel connected, I wanted to feel like I was flourishing, I wanted to feel serene and I wanted to feel purposeful and then I had to ask myself well what do I need to do in order to feel those things and, um, and the book came back up and I tried to find out about self-publishing before and I never really found anything or that, that gelled with me. Um, and I swear, like I got onto Google and the first place that popped up was Indimosh and I sent them an email and um, and they were just divine from the word go and, and that's who I eventually obviously produced the book with. So from I think it was August... Um, through to February, six months, we um, we had a book, so, and here we are. <laughs> so. Going through uh, dealing with agents and I assume and editors and things like that, and and a, and a publisher, they can want to change things and work through things. And given this is a very personal story, I mean, did did they want did they recommend things to get changed? And what sort of changes did they recommend? Was it anything massive or uh, mostly the title? So people were really divided on the, the title um, and I don't think my agent loved the title and my writing teacher hated the title um, but I loved the title. So I kept the title because I got to and the publisher loved the title as well. Um, I think I don't really remember um, with the agent, I she was just actually just more helpful with what to include in the second half and how we create the arc and how we end the book. Um, so I don't think I had to remove anything. I can't remember. That's a really good question though. Because the way the story flows through it, it, it feels very nicely structured. Did you did you have to move any events around to get that or is that just it's how it happened? No, it's pretty well told in sequence. Well, obviously not the start because I... Jump back and forth. Jump back and forth, yeah. yep. Um, 
So, no, no, nothing, nothing was fabricated, nothing was um, changed towards the end there. And in fact, I think in the last chapter, it just doesn't make sense that I come back to be talking about a certain part in the middle of that chapter. But in my head, I'm like, well, that's how it happened. So, that's how I have to tell the story. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, you mentioned before about thinking about thinking about who the book was for, who was going to read it. And we were talking a little bit beforehand about uh, if if someone is going through this kind of stuff right now, you actually said maybe don't <laughs> give them the book right now. So who who do you imagine is reading this and is going to get the most out of it? And who were you thinking about when you were writing it? Um, first of all, I hoped healthcare professionals um, because there's a running theme in the book about um, things not to say <laughs> to the anxious patient and... Um, and I know a few healthcare professionals who have read it, and including Terry, my oncologist, who um, did the launch with me. Um, she has said, gee, it really makes me think now about when I present this information or when I say this or when I do that. Um, so them, first of all. And then I think also um, family and friends, um, people who have their loved one going through that because hopefully it gives some really good insight into what it might be like. And it's really interesting because yesterday at the survivorship um, group, um, we had uh, a husband had come along with his wife. She had breast cancer and, um, and we brought him into the conversation and he said the hardest thing for him was that she would suffer in silence. She didn't want to burden him um, and we all agreed, um, everyone else in the room had been or was a patient, um, that no matter how close you were to somebody, you know, even in proximity, you at the end of the day would go to bed with your own thoughts and no one could climb into your head with you. So, um it's maybe it provides that level of insight. I personally would not have picked that up while I was going through treatment, but um, I have had people who are going through treatment um, ask me to sign their books and have said they've read it and that it was really inspirational for them. Um, I would have found it frightening as all get out, I think, yeah. <laughs> you, you are quite honest or, uh, in the book, so, yeah, I can see how that might be confronting some people. But as a health professional yourself... And having written that and going through that experience, how much have you changed and you in how much has it changed the way you do your job? <laughs> um, heaps. I, I was quite shocked actually and quite embarrassed once I – because I had, you know, cared for my husband through his treatment. I'd studied for seven years. I'd worked – with a heap of people with cancer, um, with, with stuff that I'd learnt out of a textbook – um, and and some of it would have been helpful, I'm sure. But then when I was trying that stuff out for myself and just realising the futility of some of it, it was I was embarrassed. I was like, oh, my God, I would have wanted to punch me in the face <laughs> if I had have told me to breathe deeply or something. Um, so it has made me uh, a better listener. Um, it's obviously allowed me to empathise on a whole other level. Um, but also I can – it gives me a bit of street cred now where, you know, <laughs> like – It's a very strange way to yeah. put it but I totally understand <laughs> what you mean. Yeah. Um, 
and yeah, where I can and you know say you know my darkest darkest days with my most horrendous you know horrendously intense nausea. Um, these strategies worked for me, and so even if someone doesn't have cancer, I can let people know you know when this is this is my version of what you are going through at the moment, and and this sort of stuff worked for me, and. Often, you know, so things like mindfulness, it's like flavour of the month, everyone talks about it, there's apps everywhere and whatever. But when you can say to someone, that worked for me when I wanted to die, <laughs> not suicidally of course, but um, that they are motivated to at least give it a try um, and that stuff takes perseverance to actually get the hang of. So, yeah, I feel like a much, I feel like a calmer psychologist. Yeah. Some might disagree. To go back, just to go back a little bit, what were some of the suggestions they had for an alternate title instead of a hole in my jeans? Can you remember any of them? Oh, no, I can't. I don't even know if they gave me alternate. Just like just go back to the drawing that's board. That's crap. That's crap. No <laughs> yeah. one's going to buy that. <laughs> um, does anyone have any questions? Because... I'm sure some of you probably do. So, for those of you who are listening at home, because this might be a podcast in case you're curious, uh, would your nan have liked the book is the short version of that. And also, psycho-oncologist is a strange-sounding title. That was the gist of that. Because <laughs> it says psycho. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, when you started saying that, Gail, I was thinking, oh, I'm sure I didn't call my nan a psycho. <laughs> <laughs> um, my nan would have been secretly proud that her granddaughter wrote a book. Um, she would have told me there's too much swearing and you shouldn't talk about your vagina in public. <laughs> Probably. No. <laughs> no, she would she would have been she would have she was never outwardly affectionate. Like if I would say to her, I love you, Nan, she would say, Oh, get out of here. What do you want? Um so yeah, she would have she would have been proud. But it's funny actually because Uncle Ian, who is also in the book, who lived with um, Nan until she died, he I dropped him down a copy secretly, hoping he would never read it because I think he might die when he gets to the part about the vaginas. But um, <laughs> I ran into him down the street today and was having a chat, and he said, "Oh, I've started the book," and I'm like, "Oh, what do you think?" And he goes. Yeah, I actually like it so far. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. Um, my uncle Ian has um, sort of a, an intellectual disability, um, but he's an avid reader. He, he loves to read. So, um, I don't know, I'm a little bit tickled that he's picked it up and that he'll see his name in there. <laughs> yes? Gone and she just suddenly went into this raging, mm -hmm. as well as the hot flush sort of normal 
mm. and stuff. And, and, and no one had warned her about that. And I, I suppose because she was a doctor, maybe they thought she'd just like it. But you don't treat patients. Um, and so I was just wondering what were the things that you would have liked to have been told to you that were So what would you have, what would you like to have been told? Uh, that you weren't told about that kind of came as a surprise. Jenny, you're going to make me talk about vaginas more. (laughs) 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 Um, For me, it was mostly around, yes, the side effects of menopause, um, but around sexual functioning. They just don't talk to you about sex. And... Um, and when you're 37, 38, you don't really know what menopause is and you don't know um, about the kinds of products that are available to you to make life just normal. So I struggled for a couple of years and I remember going to Chris Beaton. Whoops. <laughs> Chris Beaton. Everyone knows Every, who he Everyone is. knows Chris Beaton. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he said to me, you're not a nun. Here's some estrogen cream. Go off and use it. And um, and so then I turn up to my oncology appointment and I say, oh, and now I've got some estrogen cream. And my, yeah, my oncologist is like, Jodie, we just spent all this time trying to rid your body of estrogen. It's sick. Yeah, I know. Well, she sort of goes, oh, it's up to you. But at that point, you know, like everything she said, I took as gospel and I wouldn't dare put oestrogen anywhere near me if she said that it wasn't a good idea. So, yeah, it was a bit of a struggle for a while. But then I went to a, um, a BCNA, Breast Cancer Network Australia, uh, conference, which they are just awesome and I think um, everyone should go to one. But there they openly talked about all sorts of products and equipment that you could use. <laughs> it was just enlightening. Products my life. and equipment. <laughs> Uh, any other questions? This is the thing. If you went to the, did anyone go to the to your launch in Warrnambool? Did anyone go to the? Yes, a few people were here. You didn't get to ask questions of that one, I'm guessing. So here's your chance. Oh, really? Dorothy has uh, directed us to page 109 uh, about practical mindfulness. Can you do you want to have a look? You don't have to read it, uh, but just can you just can you just explain that and and uh, how you how you got to the point where you thought things like this would be useful? Oh yeah, 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 totally. So yes, because people hear about mindfulness practice and they think that they have to lie down for half an hour and close their eyes and say om om and think of nothing, when really that's not what mindfulness is about at all. And mindfulness comes down to being able to focus your attention on something that's happening in the present moment. Um, observing it in a non-judgmental way using as many of your senses as you can. So page 109, I actually go through a Q&A with myself um, about the nausea um, and I say, so question, if I drew an outline around the nausea, what shape would it make? Answer, 
Uh, it would trace the outline of every individual organ in infinite detail, including every centimetre of intestine. If I could touch it, what would it feel like? It would feel wet and sticky, uh, like black tar, like a dense sponge with no sharp edges. If the nausea was a temperature, what temperature would it be? It would be lukewarm. If it was a colour, what colour would it be? Shades of black and grey, very dark. So when you uh, make those observations, you're not only um, focusing your attention on that thing, you're not judging it, you're, um, you're just observing it. So you become that little curious bystander. And in doing so, you reduce the intensity of whatever sensation it is that you're observing. So um, that was, that was life-changing when I remembered that I could do something that might help. Um, yeah, it's a good page. <laughs> You're great. That's cool. See, there you go. There you My go. job is done. Someone, <laughs> someone's using that technique, so it's a, it's technically a self-help yeah. book now. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, as I'm going to call you a writer because you've written a book. So, as a writer, was there were there any influences in how you wrote this? Like, did you think did you think about other books or other writers or anything that helped you in the in the writing process? Because most other writers, you know, they borrow, steal, are influenced by other writers. But with something like this, was there other things you had read that helped shape it or shape the way you wrote? I think they might be real writers. <laughs> um, the cover photo comes from an idea of um, a ca from a Carrie Fisher book. <laughs> Does that count? <laughs> um, I can't honestly say. I think maybe more movie watching where you start with the – the cliffhanger and then you go back in time and then so mm. maybe that but no i don't think so no, no sorry no, sorry no, to disappoint right. no. <laughs> uh any other questions yes That's a great question. If someone else had written this book, would you have wanted to read it before, during or after your treatment? Um, maybe after. After active treatment ended. Um, because I think – and I remember – so when uh, Dave was diagnosed with his cancer, a thousand people gave him It's Not About the Bike – Lance Armstrong's book about testicular cancer. He had, I know, we had five copies lying around at one point and he never once read it. And um, I think Dave actually quite um, had quite an influence on how I coped with my stuff too. I, I took on board how he had done things um, with my own. Um, and I'm the sort of person that so something will happen and I will get on to Amazon or Book Depository or come to Blarney Books <laughs> and I good, will... Good save, good save. <laughs> not in that order, not in that order. <laughs> I'll find out what's available, then I'll come and buy it here. Um, and I will have a stack of books about that topic but may... Like you should see how many books I have about death. Um, but I haven't read a single one of them. Um, so I probably would have bought it and then I might have gotten around to reading it and I say this to everybody, um, so the active treatment part, you're a deer in the headlights, like I wasn't really reading anything. Um, but 
Oh, no, I did read um, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo trilogy. That was good. Um, but when end of active treatment is probably one of the hardest phases of the whole cancer train trip and um, that would have been when I would have found it helpful and probably also when I would have been seeking um, information more. I don't know. I know what's in it so I know that I wouldn't have wanted to read it while I was having treatment <laughs> probably. I'm making everyone not want to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could say that um, it, it's, it's not the type of book I would seek out to read. Um, so I can honestly say, I mean, I, I read it so that I could talk to you about it. But um, having read it, I, I feel like I feel like I would be more prepared going into something horrible like that now from having read it. So I would recommend reading it before you get cancer. Just <laughs> or, or not Do your get, homework. don't get cancer, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I w- um, yeah. So I I'd say before for that. I, I don't even, I don't think it's just about cancer either. I think no. that's a book about um, facing adversity and coping um, and and getting through to the other side. And I think that's why five hundred and fifty people came to the mm. Lighthouse Theatre, not to see me necessarily. Maybe the front six rows did because <laughs> I made them. Um, but but because you know life is is unpredictable and it's not fair and it happens to all of us and people like to find hope in um, the stories of people that have faced their own fears um, and gotten through somehow. So, mm. yeah. Everyone wants, to, everyone wants to know the secrets of overcoming adversity <laughs> and this book is full of them. <laughs> uh, more questions? Yes, Joe at the back. So that question was, uh, how should those around people going through cancer, how, how should they react? Should, is that where you're... What, what can, people, people don't know what to say. What, 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 should, what can people do and what can people say ideally to, <laughs> to, if they're trying to support someone going through this? Yeah, that's such an important question. And this came up yesterday at the survivorship group as well. And so many of them um, shared this experience where the people that they expected to show up and support them were nowhere to be seen and have long left the picture. Um, but it was the surprise people, the people they wouldn't have expected to be able to rely on that, um, that did turn up. And we all agreed that um, – so people obviously struggle with knowing what to say but often then choose to say nothing. Um, and that's, I think, a thousand times more damaging than saying, I don't know what to say. Um, that that's empathising. That goes a really long way. Um, you know, say this sucks. Say this is really shit that this is happening to you. Say I feel completely helpless. Give me a practical job. I'm going to do your ironing. Say like my bestie over there who would come and drag me out for Sunday walks and um, every week, you know, would check in and would, uh, the whole thing around social support is so important and so show, showing up is what, what counts. Um, 
and I know Jode's over there is hiding. I can't even see her face. But um, she would say to me, she she would know based on how far we walked or when I started mentioning coffee, <laughs> how I was travelling after that particular cycle. And we never had to talk about cancer very much unless I wanted to. Um, but when I did, she was there to hear it and problem solve it with me. And um, so I, I think the big thing is to show up and just be honest. Yeah. You mentioned the book, uh, those who, who who don't know what to say and they kind of disappear. But you also mentioned a couple of people who seemingly wear you like a trophy, like that they they kind of gravitate to you as as if you're some sort of prize, like the friends you didn't quite expect, but they're as if they're getting something out of it. Is it? Tell me a bit more about that kind of experience. Um, I think I'm not exactly sure who where what, but um, there there were some examples of um, people who had not been in my life that showed up when I got cancer mm. and they were certainly not the people I was wanting to lean on or um, be around and one really persistent one, you know, and would be calling me all the time and I'd be sick in bed after chemo and please ha let me help you, please let me help you. Oh, my God, you can help me by please going away. <laughs> like, And it literally was that and um, it was like they, they wanted to be a part of the gossip or something. I don't know, like, I don't know, to have a story about, yeah. I don't know, it wasn't good. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So that question was, what, what would have been helpful at the end of active treatment? Um, so luckily for me, I, I knew <laughs> to expect that. Um, it feels a bit like free falling. Uh, you're, you, up until that point, you are having very, very regular appointments with everyone um, and you feel very held and you feel like if there's anything to be discovered or found here, they will find it and it will be acted on very quickly. And then you get to the end of all of that and then you're on your own for maybe three months or maybe six months or maybe 12 months. Um, and you feel like, well, now I'm the only one. So if something changes or something happens, how will I know if it has? And, and what do I do if it does? And because that fear of recurrence is massively real and maybe it gets turned up um, at that point um, because the treatment's ended and you're no longer doing anything to stop yourself getting cancer. Um, so luckily for me, I, I had the training. I knew that that was going to be a really tricky phase and um, I'm not sure exactly what I did other than to know it was normal to feel that way, um, to talk to my doctors about it, to seek reassurance if I needed to um, and, yeah, to try to... I guess, fill my days with things that would keep me distracted. Yeah. But that was a good couple of years of working through that stuff. Thank you. 
on the printer. The newspapers, did you get to the, the bars of Yale you before, or just the old press camp sign in the window? This is in terms of being a law of bodies or what have you. Where did that come from? Where did you feel you were on the screen and had to speak to you to reading the paper? So that question was, uh, it, was it all bad news at the start? Did it, when did it get better, and, and did, what sort of a vibe did you get at the start about how you would have your, your chances of survival? Is that well, at, at the beginning. Yeah, at the, at the beginning. I just felt like this book was going down the road, and I didn't actually find out this is the best treatment for you, because you guys did the pictures treatment, and if no one was really willing to come and say, well, you can have an operation or radiation or this or that, Um, yeah, no, no, that's all right. It's, uh, yeah, uh, it is, yeah. Tell, tell us about the, the start and uh, of the process and the information you got and the, how much of it was bad news and was there anything that sort of gave you a little bit of hope as well, I guess, or choice? This is why you should always take someone to your appointments with you because you don't always hear or understand the information that's being given to you. And when I first had the, the first lump, um, diagnosed, they they were talking to me about the options between having a lumpectomy and a mastectomy and they told me that there was no difference um, in survivorship rates between the two and in my head I thought that meant that it wouldn't matter which one I had, um, that they would equally be effective in um, stopping the cancer from coming back and I had the lumpectomy because at that point we only knew I had one and we were trying to preserve um, my breasts. Um, and then I got, got the second one within a month or two after that one. And I don't even know at what point I um, came to realise that survivorship rates were different to actual recurrence rates. And had I have known that, I probably would have gone, just get rid of it. Like, I want this off me, it's trying to kill me. Um, by the time I got the second one, of course, I was like, get these off me, they're trying to kill me. That was easy. Um, I think you look for hope everywhere. And um, I, this was, it was really interesting sitting with Terry a couple of weeks ago because the first question I asked her was, did she ever think I was going to die? And I looked to her as my beacon of hope and um, I sort of felt safe in her hands. We were doing. She would always say, Jodie, we're doing everything we can. You're doing everything you can. You're having the best treatments available. You're having the most effective surgeries. You're so I always felt relatively safe with her. But then she said that night, um, well, you were young and uh, breast cancer in young women is often very, very aggressive. Um, and then, of course, there was a stage where I thought that it had spread to my liver. So I, I thought for sure I was going to die. And for a, a long time afterward, just assumed I probably wouldn't see the five-year mark. And 
Now we're nine years. I still don't take that for granted, but I feel a lot more relaxed about it. Um, I still don't assume I'll make it to 90, but um, it's looking good for the next five at least, I think. <laughs> Could you have written this book before the five-year mark? I started it in 2012. So, in fact, I did write it before the five-year yeah. mark because I was two years out then. When so I started it, so yeah. you'd started this two years out. Did did that? Do you think that would have cha uh, could have changed the way you, you looked at it a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think you know final edits probably happened closer to the five year mark. So um, I probably did. Mm, it probably shaped to the end. Like the the second half of the book wasn't as developed as the first half. So. It probably was more about shaping the end and making sense of what had happened. And I wouldn't have had that mm. insight. You needed that bit of time. Yeah. 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 Mm. Any other questions? Don't be shy. <laughs> no. Nope. We're all deep in contemplation. Yes? Sorry. That question was, uh, did you, were you one of the people that looked up every piece of information they could about what they had or were you someone who wanted to remain somewhat oblivious? I think I had, I think I had a really bad um, Dr. Google experience. It was like <laughs> touching a hot plate that ensured I never went back there again. And um, also I remember early on maybe first couple of appointments with my surgeon and he gave me um, uh, an uh, article. He So we'd had our, our consult. Um, I was at the front paying because you have to pay for this stuff. And um, he came out, Jodie, I forgot to give you this and I forgot to tell you that you're vitamin D deficient. Okay, cool. So I go down to my oncologist appointment with the paper in hand and um, I read the first line. Women who are vitamin D deficient when diagnosed with breast cancer are more likely to die. <laughs> that needed an editor, I think. <laughs> <laughs> they needed someone to read it before they started <laughs> handing it out. So um, I stopped reading stuff like that then. <laughs> yeah. With statistics and things, they can twist those to make them tell you whatever they want it, want them to. No. And I had a client, um, this was mm, maybe 2012 as well, who um, was diagnosed with exactly the same breast cancer I had, prescribed exactly the same treatment regime but went off um, for second opinions and things and came into a session one day and said, well... My second oncologist said that that treatment regime will only be effective for 4% of the people that have it. And oh, you can imagine, I was on the phone to Terry. <laughs> what the? <laughs> I'm coming in to see you. And, uh, and and then she explained the whole, how the statistics are and that you can, yeah, take it out of context and, yeah. Um, 
just a couple more questions that, that I've thought of. How helpful are psycho-oncologists? <laughs> very, very, very helpful. <laughs> are you saying that as a psycho-oncologist or as a, as a, as a patient, former patient of one? Well, my psychologist wasn't a psycho-oncologist. He, oh my God, that first session, he was so nervous because I was um, the poor thing. And he's like, okay, what what do we need to do here? And I said, well, you need to get me to show up to cycle two because at this stage of the game I am not going anywhere near that stuff. That was horrendous. And he goes, well, what would you do with a patient in this situation? And I said, well, (laughs) I'd do some probably, you know, exposure therapy and some relaxation therapy and stuff. And he goes, I really suck at relaxation. (laughs) And I said, me too, don't worry about it. And he's like, phew, and he relaxed. And um, and then we, he did the most amazing guided imagery where I was like walking down by the beach and incredible. I still remember it, it was so amazing. Um, They can be really helpful, really, really helpful because uh, you're on a roller coaster, you have this, whole gamut of emotions um that you're going through and and you don't know if they're normal or not and um and there are some obvious obviously some tools that can make the the ride a bit smoother um and yeah i guess a psychologist can help you you know put some tools in your toolkit and get through a little bit easier you mentioned that that at the end of active treatment is sort of like just everything kind of stops all this regular contact that you had did you keep seeing a psychologist after that point or, or would, would that have been helpful in those in that stage when you sort of you've reached the end and it's like and you're left on your own uh yes i actually changed psychologists then so i had the one in the book for the whole year and then the next year when it was more about being well again and trying to figure out what all of that meant and who I was in all of that um, I decided I'd have a different person I didn't want the same person who'd been through the other stuff with me so I did find that really helpful yeah and tell me about the, the, this the, why you made that choice to go to change at that point that you didn't want someone with that not baggage but that, that had mm. been through that that stage I think because I was at a different stage. I think I wanted to leave the cancer stuff in that year. Um, And I also changed, and I don't know that this was conscious, from a male therapist to a female. Um, Yeah, I think it was more about a fresh start kind of approach. And I I wanted strategies and I wanted a sounding board for that future, not for the the past. Um, Well, all of a sudden we've got heaps more questions. Um, we'll start over there. So <laughs> that question was uh, because of going through cancer, what, at what point could you start to focus on the fact that your marriage had actually ended as well? I actually thought that I had gotten away with it. <laughs> like I thought, oh, yes, surely cancer trumps everything and um, at least I don't have to go through that grief. And then it was New Year's Eve that year um, 
and he had come home to have Christmas with me. Um, we obviously still were getting along really well. We're not in as much contact now, which is probably just a healthy, normal thing. Um, and he left after that Christmas and, oh, my God, it was horrendous. And when I was saying before about there were parts of the book when I was reading it that I didn't want to go back into, it was that part. Um, and I didn't escape it and it hit really freaking hard. <laughs> and um, then I, yeah, I was like, I'm really winning at life. This is the best. <laughs> it was awful. Yeah. But anyway, best way through grief is through it, right? So I just had to had to do that. And sometimes um, would tell myself and still tell myself when hard stuff happens that, you know, been through chemo, man, you can <laughs> do anything. <laughs> So that question was, how has it changed your outlook on life? And, yeah, do you not sweat the small stuff now that you've been through something so major like that? It definitely changes everything. Um, I'd like to be really cool and say I never sweat the small stuff. I still <laughs> I still do. Um, but, and I, yeah, uh, but so one of the things that was really, I guess, where cancer was a protective factor for me was with the childlessness stuff. Um, so, had I... So, so getting to live became enough in that regard. Had I have not had cancer and been childless, I don't know that I would have coped at all with that. Um, so, that's one blessing. Um, blessings and journeys, don't you hate those words? I can't believe I just said that. Um, like we're a reality show. Yeah. I also don't I, – I choose very carefully how and who I spend my time with. Um, I, I never wash my car. <laughs> my dad does. <laughs> I don't clean my house. Some, someone else cleans it. It's clean. Um, but I just don't – I don't want to waste my life ev on even if it's a matter of hours doing something that's not meaningful to me. Um, so I'm probably maybe a bit more relaxed about things like that than most people. But I'd never wash my car either. I feel so much better about it now. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> uh, there was another question over here, which I think is from someone who's actually in the book. She's in the book. You're she in wants the book. to know if you want autographs I was later. Gonna, <laughs> I'm wondering how long this Michael it is. Hang on, hang on a sec. This is Joe. Come up a bit closer because I want to ask you a question. Oh God. I want to ask you a question because you're in the book. So come over here. <laughs> she didn't read it until it was published. By the way, she didn't want oh, okay. to. Okay, because you you trusted her. Yeah. So I, wanted, I needed to see it finished. So being the best friend and knowing how hard it was to get that book published, I made a decision to not touch it until it was really real. It was real, but once it was hardcover, I went, okay, we'll read it now. So the, the question is, is how did you feel reading that book finally? And not only because you're in it, but because you had, you know, been there along for the ride a little bit. But <laughs> <laughs> how, did, how did that feel? Um, I was really proud. Um, I've been proud the whole way. 
So when it was on the shelf, that was heartbreaking, as heartbreaking as it was for Joe's, it was for me. But to read it was, she's my best friend and that's her in the book. And that was amazing. So it was, it's exactly Jodie. So um, cried a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, brought back things, brought back memories that I'd probably put on the back burner because when you're working and walking along with somebody every weekend and you're, you're going through what they're going through, you go through every stage that's shared and it's not that you forget, you're on to the next thing. So it brought back some really raw memories. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of crying but there was a lot of laughing too. So there's a, a person in the book that um, Jodes describes and I was reading it at 12 o'clock at night so my whole family are asleep and I have roared with laughter at a certain person coming into the book and, and I had to put the book down and then I went, oh, I've probably woken everybody up because I was just, and then I've picked it up again and absolutely just belted out laughing and I went, oh, that person would so do that. So, um, but yeah, immensely proud of this person sitting up on the stage. And now that I made you do that, what was your question? Oh, can I sit down and ask it? Oh, thank you. Um, I think you've touched on this a little bit, but something that I've thought about with the few talks that you've done. Do you think given your profession and the experience that you had, do you think that sometimes some of the health professionals that were treating you or giving you advice or not giving you advice kind of thought, you've got it in the bag, you'll be fine, and we're a bit, they treated you a little bit differently to perhaps a a patient that doesn't have the experience that you have? I don't... It's a good question. I don't think so. I think apart from the psychologist who was very open about that in the beginning, because Terry, I only say that now knowing um, that Terry said she was very, very conscious of not expecting me to cope better than anyone else. I probably thought I would cope better. I probably was very good at... Um, looking like I was coping better than I did. I, you know, knowing what I knew, I knew which parts to prepare for and, um, you know, I turned up to my first chemo with my mandala cards to colour in and my MP3 player to listen to my relaxation and my music and my book to read if I felt like reading and my support person on my left and I was ready. I even wore a pink cardigan. How cliched is that? And then, oh, yeah, then the world fell apart and I realised that I had no idea what I was in for. Um, but I don't don't think so. I don't – maybe they did. Maybe my GP did. But I was pretty good at talking – walking the talk, talking the talk to him. Was there – that was your question as well. <laughs> yeah, okay. Did you have to remind people you were a patient? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't. I don't remember, <laughs> to be honest. I think so. I I think he just would always hand out brochures and and not have read them and not have read them <laughs> yeah. for a long time. <laughs> Danny, did you, you have a question? Yeah, 
Do you still practice psycho-oncology? Um, I probably – I do. I do see people that have cancer. It's not my main focus. Um, and in Warrnambool, you, can't, you don't have the luxury of specialising because we don't have enough practitioners as it is and um, so I do more general – clinical work um but i i love being involved in the survivorship groups at southwest healthcare and i do particularly love ian collins um has a special interest in the whole genetic um mutation area and so he does see some women who um are making decisions around prophylactic mastectomies and surgeries um once they've found out they carry the mutation and as i carry the mutation he and i have talked a lot about how that is beneficial to them um, and so he sends them to me for assessments before their surgery just to make sure that they're um, you know making the right decision for themselves and I guess um, in an emotional state in order to make that decision so I love that work um, and yeah every now and then I only have probably one person at the moment that has is having active treatment um, yeah I'm not sure why that is I wouldn't say no um, but after that one where it was a bit close to home for a long time, I, I took a big break, big step back. Yeah. Was there another question over here somewhere? No. Over here? That question was, uh, as someone who has helps other people for a living, was it difficult to focus on yourself? Did you need help to do that? Um, I think I think a few things about that actually. I, I think I, because I had a good understanding about what I would need, I put the things in place um, to make sure that I would get what I needed, like my psychologist and making sure I was surrounded by family and friends. I moved down to have treatment from Newcastle because um, I knew that would be the best place um, to have that support. I worked all the way through chemo um, because I needed something to feel normal because everything else had changed and I'm and that was about wanting to help others. So I'm not quite sure how good that was at helping myself. Um, probably in hindsight I should have not. Um, it went well though I think for the most part but and it was really good for me. But then I think actually and I don't know, Jodes can probably um, answer this a little bit better or Mel, my other friend um, in the audience. I sort of feel like I kept – so when so, so I did become pretty good at putting myself first and then I feel like I haven't reversed that. <laughs> 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 and here we are. <laughs> <laughs> Only sometimes, I, but but I'm not very quick at thinking about. Um, I think about myself a lot first. What will be good for me here? Self, it is self care. But thanks, Danny. <laughs> nice reframe. But yeah, sometimes I go, "Whoa, you really haven't, you know, come back <laughs> from that." Mm, sorry. Um, 
I was. Is there any other questions from out there? I got one last one, and we might maybe we'll wrap it up to that after that because I don't know. If, is anyone? Oh God, got, 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 yeah, it's nine o'clock, and people might want to get to other things or get their books signed. Has anyone got the book signed yet? Um, one last thing I was going to ask is, having you've reread and reread bits of this as you've been writing it and everything, but is there anything you would have done differently through the whole process of it? Like th through the treatment and and everything you've been through, is there anything you would have done differently? Hey, would you was that not not had cancer? Was, yes. Aside from that, <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't. I don't know. That's a really interesting question. Um, I'm usually not one to have regrets. I think. Um, I think. As far as the treatment stuff goes, um, no, I'm really happy with how all of that went. I probably maybe well, no, I no, because it all turned out okay. So I think I wouldn't have changed anything. I I might have changed the so the before going in to chemo, we tried to harvest some eggs um, to preserve some embryos um, to freeze knowing that I wouldn't be able to use them until I was 43. Uh, and then we had a whole heap of messy stuff happen and I we couldn't get them. And I was just like, no, get this cancer out of my body. Let's not waste any more time. So I sometimes wonder about that. I don't think I, I possibly – I wouldn't have wanted to be a single mother at 43 – scared that being pregnant might have brought cancer back anyway. So it's all worked out the way it should have I yeah, no. As far as the book goes, no. <laughs> Before that, probably I would have made a heap of changes <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you everyone for coming along uh, for this far more intimate book launch. And thank you all for your questions and your attentiveness. Uh, can we have one more round of applause for Dr. Jodie Fleming? Thanks so much for coming out. Thank you, Matt. That was really cool conversation. <laughs> And thank you, Joe and Dean, for having us. When I first wanted to launch the book, um, my big dream was actually to have it here with my family and friends. And so I love that um, I've ended up coming back here and, um, and get to sit on this stage in these cool chairs and with all of you. So thank you so much.